Sunday school. Teachers take charge of your classes. God bless you, church. says, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing songs. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Back, back up to verse 13. There's something, something you need to keep in mind in reading this whole last segment is what I've repeated over and over going through the book of James. He's writing to believers. He's writing to the brethren. We really need to keep that in mind, especially when we consider the last two verses of this chapter. He's writing to believers in Jesus Christ. And uh, this, this section here, uh, uh, this passage of Scripture... Uh, we need to keep in mind it's just that. It's a passage. And uh, the, the whole anointing thing, all of us have probably witnessed or maybe been part of, maybe been anointed ourselves. Uh, but the whole anointing thing is part of a passage of Scripture that begins in James chapter 5 and verse 13. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I've only been in one anointing <coughs> service, if you'd like to call it that. Uh, I've only been in one that has followed this to a T as per the passage of Scripture. And that actually took place in a man's house. It wasn't even in church that that happened. Uh, but the, the whole calling for the elders of the church, letting them anoint him with oil, that's all great and fine and well. Uh, but that passage begins at verse 13 where it says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. What does afflicted mean? Well, if you look this term up, the Greek term that was used, it means, is any among you suffering? Uh, not necessarily physically. 
It could be spiritual suffering. It could be mental suffering. It could certainly be physical suffering. But is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. And that's any of you. If any anyone in the congregation, that's not just the ones that he's saying that uh, should go for the elders of the church. It says if any among you are afflicted. This includes the elders that are going to be doing the anointing. This, this would include anybody that's going to be taking part in, in this. He says, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Not let him call this one or call that one. Not let him whine about it. Not let him sit and mope and feel sorry for himself. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. And we have we have example upon example upon example of this in the scriptures of people that are afflicted, people that are suffering, people that are feeling woeful, if you'd like to phrase it like that. Uh, and what do they do? They pray. You take David in the Old Testament. How was, how was he afflicted uh, after, the, after the adulterous case with Bathsheba that he had? After he was convinced of his sin, after he was convicted of that, what did he do? He said, I've sinned. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against the Lord. And uh, my goodness, he's got an entire psalm written about that, about his repentance. What, but what did it drive him to do? It drove him to pray. It drove him to repent. It drove him to, uh, to come back to God, per se. And, there, and I said, there's multiple uh, accounts of this happening in the scripture. The best example that we have in scripture is Jesus Christ himself. Just before, just before he was arrested and just before the crucifixion, where do we find Jesus? We find him praying. Why? Because he was afflicted. He was suffering. He was suffering mentally. And he knew that he was going to be suffering physically. He, and he was afflicted uh, in these ways. And that's the best example I can think of. Luke's account says that he sweat or that he prayed and his sweat became as great drops of blood. The man was uh, the man was sore with affliction, but what did it drive him to do? It drove him to pray. It drove him to pray. Is any among you afflicted? Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. And me personally, I think that this is the way that an anointing should should go should go about uh, within any service. It should start at James 13, and it should begin with people praying. We're coming up to praying here uh, uh, during the anointing, but this passage begins at verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any married? Let him sing songs. So we've gone from being afflicted, suffering, wherever the case is, to is there any... Is there any Mary? Is there any among you Mary? Let him sing songs. And this is uh, another uh, uh, thing that we can find several accounts of in the scriptures. And sometimes that affliction and that prayer will drive us uh, to, a, to a point of merriment, to a point of joy in the Lord. And that should cause us to sing songs. You look at Paul and Silas when they were in prison. They were afflicted. They were thrown into the dungeon. They had, they had bands around them. Uh, and what did that drive them to do? Drove them, uh, drove them to pray and to sing songs. Uh, is any among you merry? Let them sing songs. Uh, you know, we should uh, admonish one another with song, songs and hymns, as Paul wrote to the, uh, to the Colossians. 
We should admonish one another with those things. We can encourage one, uh, one another with psalms and with hymns. Uh, but is any among you married? Let him sing psalms. So he basically tells us one side of the coin here. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. And then he flips to the other side of the coin, goes on a whole different spectrum, and says, okay, we've covered the affliction. Let's cover the merry. Let's cover the joyful. Let's cover the happy. Is any among you married? Let him sing psalms. And folks, this should be, every Christian should take part in that because we're all afflicted to one point or another. We're all afflicted with something. Again, maybe it is physical. Maybe it is spiritual. Maybe it is emotional or mental or whatever, but we're all afflicted. Uh, so we can all relate to that, and we should all pray because of that. But at the same time, if we are true blue Christians, if we are truly born again, then we should all be married to one extent or another. We should all have joy in Jesus Christ, Amen. knowing that this affliction ain't going to last forever. Knowing that the affliction that we're praying about before we get to the singing the psalms, knowing that that will not be the case forever. It'll only last for a little while. And, uh, you know, it may have lasted for years in your life, whatever that affliction is. Uh, it, it may last for decades in your life. But that, as compared uh, with eternity, that is a very short while. That's the vapor that uh, James was talking about in James chapter 4. When he asked, what is your life? It is but a vapor. You know, it could last our entire lives, our afflictions could. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Uh, let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And I've uh, uh, heard it said that anointing anybody in any other name outside of the name of the Lord uh, makes this anointing null and void. Well, who is the Lord? The Lord is Jesus Christ. We know that. So it's not that we have to, when we pray, we have to say we do this in the name of the Lord. We can say in the name of Jesus Christ. We can say in the name of the God of heaven. We can say in the name of the God of heaven and of earth. We can, we can call them all kinds of things. We can say in the name of the rock if we want to, if, as long as we're referring to Jesus Christ, because he's referred to as all of those things in the scriptures and many more. But I've heard people uh, say uh, say such a thing that it has to just like baptizing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because that's brought up a couple of times in the book of Acts that's all great and fine and well but Jesus Christ says himself at the end of the gospel of Matthew baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost so either way you want to go with that's fine I'll go by the way Jesus said to do it though but he says is any sick among you let him call for the elders of the church this blows a lot of faith healers out of the water. And what do faith healers do? They come into town. They roll into their arenas. They invite people in. And they give out tickets to people. They say, we're, we're inviting you to actually come up to the stage and be healed. And granted, some of, them, uh, some of those people are plants that they bring with them from arena to arena. Uh, some people, though, that there might just be a chance that they might be quote-unquote healed, they give them tickets to go to the stage. Folks, that ain't the way Scripture says to do it. It says let him call for the elders of the church, not let the elders call for him. 
let him talk to the elders of the church. So the one that is afflicted, the one that is prayed, he is the one that's to call for the elders of the church. Not the elders go to him and say, would you like to be anointed? And I hadn't been preaching very long, and this verse caught my attention. I wasn't even reading the book of James, but I thought on it. I, you know, I've told you all before I love the book of James. But I thought about this verse because I had asked people if they wanted to be anointed. Folks, that's the way Scripture says to do this. Let, let him call for the elders of the church. Let the afflicted call for the elders of the church. If you want to be anointed, you call for the elders of the church. You call for them, not they call for you. And this, uh, on a side note, also rolls on to if you're afflicted and you want people to know about it and you want the elders praying for you, you need to inform the elders that you're afflicted. You need to inform them that you're sick. Don't go laying in a hospital for a week and not tell anybody and get mad when the preacher don't come visit you because he never knew about it. You need to inform people. You need to tell people that you're afflicted. You need to tell them that you want prayer. Now, that being said, you don't show up for service and you're a regular attendee and uh, and you don't show up and the preacher don't call to check up on you. That may fall in the preacher's lap. But anybody that's not a regular attendee and, you know, well, they missed another service. Maybe they'll be here next week. Then... That don't fall on the preacher at all. Uh, but the, the, those that are afflicted, they are the ones that call for the elders of the church. They're the ones that say, I'm afflicted. I'm suffering. I'm going through this. I need help. And I want scriptural help. I want to be anointed. So let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This oil has no magic power. And technically, the prayers, well, not even technically, the prayers don't have any magic power. There is no magic involved with Jesus Christ or God. It is power, yes, but it's not magic. It's not magical. Uh, but the power is not in our prayers. The power is not in the old. The power is not in the elders. And the power is certainly not in the afflicted, who, if they're afflicted, they're weak anyway. Uh, whether it be physically, spiritually, or whatever the case is. The power is in Almighty God. And what, what does a service like this, though, what does anointing someone do? What, is it, what does it do, not only for the elders? Like I said, we're including everybody in the congregation, according to James chapter 5 and verse 13. Is any sick among you, or is any among you afflicted? Is any among you married? That's the entire congregation. What does this anointing service do? It concentrates everyone's prayer on this one individual's needs. It and, and surely to goodness, out of a congregation, whether it's a congregation of five people or a congregation of 500 people, surely to goodness, somebody's prayer can get through. Somebody can pray unto God the way that they're supposed to. Now we know just a, a couple more verses into this says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I believe that. I truly do. But in this anointing service, the elders are to anoint the afflicted with oil. They are to pray over him. 
says that her pray over him in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. How many of you people out there have heard of people being anointed? How many people uh, have prayed for people to be healed and yet they pass away? Yet they die. Is that your fault? Is that their fault? No, it's, it's nobody's fault. It's nobody's fault. I've seen, I've seen fingers pointed at people in congregations. I've seen people say, if you had had more faith when you prayed, they might have lived. Could that be the case? Could be, but I don't think it is. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. It's appointed unto man wants to die. God knows the very day, hour, minute, and second that I'm going to die. I don't know that, and I thank God that I don't. You all don't know that, and you should thank God that you don't. It's appointed unto man wants to die. The power of faith, not the power of the old, not the power of the deacons or, or the pastors or preachers or whoever it is that's gathered around, not their power, the power of faith. The power of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. The power of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. Listen, folks, I thank God for doctors. I thank God for medicine. If it wasn't for medicine, I'd have been dead a long time ago without the Lord. The Lord, the Lord can intervene. The Lord can cure. The Lord can heal. The Lord can cleanse. The Lord can do all of these things. How many people have you seen saved? I'm talking about physically. How many people have you seen saved or healed uh, of whatever disease or infirmity is that they've had? That they've been to the doctor. The doctor, quote unquote, figured out what was going on, prescribed them some medicine or treated them for their illness or threw them on antibiotics because it was an infection way down deep in their body that nobody could see. Something along those lines, and they were healed. Ultimately, that healing comes from God. Ultimately, doctors may have stepped in and done their thing. Nurses may have stepped in and done their thing. You know, grandma and grandpa and mom and daddy might have been praying, and that was all great and fine and well. But ultimately, it's God that does the healing. The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. This is not implying that if someone wants to be anointed in a church service or in their home or in a hospital bed, wherever they are, that the, the prayer over them is enough to forgive their sins. There's a couple of different ways you can look at this verse. One, you've got to think back 2,000 years ago and even on beyond that, that if someone was sick, if someone was afflicted, a lot of times it was seen as a judgment of God because of their sin. And that could be what James was getting at. I personally don't think so. But that could be what he was getting at because like I said that, that's how they saw things. In fact, that's how the Old Testament uh, uh, teaches it in a lot of places. If you do this, I'm going to curse you and you're going to get bulls. Or you're going to get this medical issue or that medical problem. or whatever. God had all kinds of curses for his people over what? Over sin. So that, could, that very well could be what James was talking about here. But he says, if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. 
that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. This doesn't mean I need to know every single deep, dark, dirty secret that you've got stashed away in a closet and you don't need to know mine. There is few things worse that I've seen in churches since I've been saved, even before I got saved, as a matter of fact, than Christians who debate over who is the worst sinner. Christians who almost talk about their sin in a prideful manner, like they're bragging about it. And I've been guilty of it. I had years ago. I was, I was guilty of that. And good Lord straightened me out on that. Your sin's no more black or evil or wicked than my sin is. If you told a lie and I hadn't, which that's not the case, but if you've told a lie and I haven't, then that doesn't make me any better than if I had stole something and you hadn't. Sin is sin is sin is sin in the eyes of a thrice holy God who has never known sin and never committed sin. No one's sin is worse than another's sin. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God according to the scriptures. There is no sense in us debating over who the worst sinner was. It's amazing to me that as much of a sinner as I was and some of the things that I did, uh, that God would even want to save me. That amazes me, yes, and I can brag on God about that all day long. But confessing our faults one to another does not mean that we have to tell each other every little thing that we have done. Not only that, but this verse absolutely blows Catholic confessional out of the water. Confessing your faults one to another. If I confess my faults to the priest, the priest needs to confess his faults to me. That's one to another. And that's not how they practice it. But, that's just a side note. Then you, uh, uh, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. That's the important part of this verse. Confess your faults and pray for one another. Comma, that ye may be healed. What does that tell me? That tells me that sin in our lives gets in the way of our prayers unto God. Sin in our lives gets in, it hinders our prayer life. Confessing our faults one to another and praying for one another that ye may be healed. In other words, if I've got known sin in my life and I'm going to God asking for healing for one of my boys or my grandson or my wife or anybody else and I've got known sin in my life, God ain't going to hear that. God ain't going to hear that. And that's, that's uh, backed up in the book of Psalms. I believe it's Psalm 68. says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard iniquity, if I regard sin in my life, the Lord will not hear me. <clears throat> Confession is good for the soul, is it not? Confess your faults one to another. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. That's confession. But there's too many out there that think that they live a perfect life. And they think that they live a sinless life. They think when they got saved, that brought them to the point of sinless perfection. Only Jesus Christ has ever lived a life of sinless perfection. Only he has done that. We will have bodies one day. that will that, And we're going to live in eternity one day in sinless perfection. But folks, it ain't happening right now. 
You yeah. sin every day. I sin every day. Mm -hmm. Every one of us sin every day. We confess our faults one to another. And we pray one for another. That we may be healed. That we can be healed. Confess and pray that we can be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This is where I fail and this is where a lot of people fail. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. That word fervent means intense. That doesn't mean i got to scream and spit and slobber when I pray. It just simply means I need to mean it when I pray. I don't just fall down on my knees at night and say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I mean what I'm praying, and I fail at this. More often, more often than not, I fail at being fervent in my prayers. Now, something, something major is going on in life. Every one of us can pray fervently. Every one of us can do that. But in the back of our mind, we might be thinking, Lord, I've gone to church all my life. I pay my tithes. I do this and I do that. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Because we haven't been very fervent in our Christian walk. Let alone in our prayer life. I fail in fervent prayer a lot of times. I do. Sometimes it's just simply because I'm tired. Sometimes it's because we uh, we just fall into a uh, fall into a, a practice of it and, and don't really mean it. We just, we just get caught up in the wheel and we roll with it, thinking that's what I'm supposed to do. And we are to pray. We should pray. My goodness, what a privilege we have! To pray unto the creator of this universe. And what a privilege it is that he wants to hear our prayers. What a privilege that is. Praise God for that. But when we look at confess your faults one to another, pray one for another that you may be healed. Then he says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It's got to be effectual. And it's got to be fervent in order for it to avail. I'm not saying that God won't hear our little tiny prayers. I've said many times, the greatest prayer uh, outside of the prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17, outside of that prayer, I think the greatest prayer in all of Scripture is when Jesus is walking on the water and Peter says, Lord, if that's you, bid, bid me that I can come to you. He says, come. Peter steps out, Peter goes down on the water and he comes up and he says, Lord, save me. That's the greatest prayer in all of Scripture. Lord, save me. And he was talking about phys physical saving there. He was going to drown. He said, Lord, save me. But I guarantee you it was effectual, and I guarantee you it was fervent, because Peter thought he was going to die. Well, I said, to be intense doesn't mean that, that we, we have to sweat great drops of blood as Jesus Christ did. It doesn't mean that we have to yell when we pray. I've been known to do that. And maybe some of you all have too, but it, uh, that's not what fervent means. Fervent just means intense. It means that, uh, that you mean what you are praying instead of just falling into a, a, a rhetorical prayer or a repeating prayer of some kind. And God, now listen, I pray for a lot of the same things every day, and you all do too. Uh, every one of us do that. We, we might repeat some of the same things daily, maybe even hourly. Or, you know, a few times a day, whatever the case is, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. But don't let 
those things get in the way of the things that you've heard throughout the day. I told so-and-so I would pray for them. I need to remember to do that. And you pray for so-and-so, and you pray for whatever their need is, whether it's healing or, or whatever the case is. You go through your mind and you think of everyone that you've told you'd be praying for. But what do we do a lot of times? We'll say our prayers and we'll say, Lord, if I've left anybody out, bless them too. And we, we think that that's sufficient. Shame on us. Shame on me. Shame on me. Elias was a, man, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by a space of uh, three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. The most important part of those two verses is the very beginning of verse 17. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. In other words, there wasn't nothing special about Elijah. There was, he was a man just like I'm a man. He was a human being just like you all are human beings and just like I am. Yet, he was able to pray and the Lord held back the rain for three and a half years. The most important part of that is that Elijah was just like us. But he prayed effectually. He prayed fervently. Why did he do that? Because he believed God. He believed what God said. He, be he, he believed the words of God. He believed what scriptures they had at that time uh, from God. But he believed God. And because he believed God, that caused him to pray effectually and fervently. And even though he was just a man such as I am, he, Elijah didn't walk around with a halo over his head. He didn't have angel's wings. He didn't have any of those things. He said he had a simple belief in Almighty God, that Almighty God would do what he said. He says, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was subject to the same temptations, the same trials, the same afflictions. He was subject to everything that you and I are. In fact, we got a lot more luxurious uh, uh, we have a lot more luxurious lifestyle about us than Elijah ever dreamed of having. But he was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Y'all should be familiar with that account. Elijah prayed, the rain stopped three and a half years. Then what happened? Elijah prayed again. Prayed, I believe it was seven times. Six times, his servant send them out nothing was going on but boy that, that last time sir come back he said I see a cloud like a man's hand come up out of the sea Amen. next thing you know it done got dark rain was falling <clears throat> it says he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit now this may or may not be what James was getting at but we can apply it to ourselves. We pray. Sometimes our life gets barren. Sometimes our life gets dried up. I'm talking about a Christian life. It gets barren, it gets dried up, it gets fruitless. But we pray God will send the rain. God will send that rain. And it will bring forth fruit. It's what it was designed to do. It was designed to... to saturate the earth to cause things to spring up and those things that spring up produce fruit 
So when we get in our Christian walk and we feel like it's dried up, which every time your Christian walk dries up, it's your fault. Every time mine dries up, it's my fault. Every time it becomes barren and fruitless, it ain't God's fault. It ain't my wife's fault. It ain't nobody's fault but mine. But I'm the one that needs to do the praying in that case. I'm the one that needs to do the repenting in that, in that case. And I'm the one who needs to pray. He prayed again in the heaven, gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sin. And I'll reiterate it one last time. James is writing to believers. He's writing to save people. People have confessed Christ as their Savior. Keep that in mind when we read this. Because I have seen this verse, take, or these two verses taken out of context and applied wrongly. Especially in a couple of different denominations. We won't get into that. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him. Now he's talking to the brethren. And he's talking about the brethren erring from the truth. And he's talking about the brethren converting the brethren. But what are they converting them to? What do we think of when we think of conversion? When we're talking about church, talking about the Bible, talking about belief in Christ. Conversion is somebody that gets saved. That's not what James is talking about here. Because he begins this. Brethren. Brethren. He says... If any of you do err from the truth and one conversion, what does conversion mean? It simply means turning them around. Turn them around. They're headed, they're headed south, you want them to head north. They're headed east, you want them to head west. Why? Because that's where the good stuff is. I'm just using those as examples. But it's a it's a simple turning around of someone, convincing someone of their ways. And unfortunately, this is uh, uh, looked over a lot of times uh, as far as church discipline goes. And folks, church discipline is a very biblical thing and, and you have to call people out in their sin. Now, there's ways to go about that. You don't start out with the whole congregation. You start out with that individual. Then, if the individual ignores another individual, then you get a couple of other people to go with you to that individual. Not calling out in front of everybody and so on. But either way, it says, if any of you do err from the truth, folks, that tells me I'm susceptible to erring from the truth. If any of you, brethren, if any of you err from the truth, I'm susceptible to it. You are susceptible to it. We're not bulletproof in this thing. I can err from the truth. You can err from the truth. Brethren, if any of you err, do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. I can't save a soul, period. But when we take this into context, and we go all the way up to verse 13, this is one passage of scripture that we're reading here. We go all the way up to verse 13 where we started at today. And we get down to verse 14. It says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And then in verse 15, The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. 
We take all that in the context, or, or we apply verse 20 in that context. It makes a whole lot more sense to us. Now, that's not to say that if, you know, just as an example, a drunkard gets saved, and he comes to church, and a few years later, he goes out one weekend and gets plastered, and the deacons and the pastor and whoever else goes to him, and, and says, you really shouldn't be doing this. You know you're not supposed to be drinking. And he truly repents. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's not going to die the next day. That's not what we're saying here. But when we're taking it into context, and, and listen, the Bible talks about this sort of thing. But we all, we all know people that have been saved, people who have uh, been saved at a young age and died at a young age. We know people who have been saved at a young age and lived on up into years. And there, for some reason, and, and I know there's scriptures that talk about it, but, folks, sinners can live just as long, unsaved sinners can live just as long as saved people can, and vice versa. You take off through a cemetery sometime, you'll see those gravestones of those babies that didn't live 24 hours. They lived and died the same day. And you'll also see the gravestones of people who lived over a hundred years. Now, whether they were saved or lost, I don't know. Folks, God is no respecter of persons as far as salvation goes. Death is no respecter of persons as to whom death claims. Death doesn't care how old or young you are or how old or young I am. Death is no respecter of persons as far as that goes. But let him know. Let him know let who know? Well, back to verse 19. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, one convert him, let him know. Him is that one. Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. I am incapable of hiding any sin from God. What could James possibly be getting at here? and shall hide a multitude of sins. Let's go back to the drunkard that I just used as an example. If we, if same scenario, drunkard gets saved a few years later, gets plastered, people go to him and say, this is wrong, you shouldn't be doing this, you know better, you've heard better, you've heard it taught, you've heard it preached, you've read it yourself in the Bible, and he converts, which means he turns turns around, headed back to the right direction because he erred in his ways and someone showed him the error of his ways and he repents, not get saved again, but he repents. We can't get saved again. You get saved once and that's it, period. But he turns. We've hidden multiple accounts of him being drunk in the future. Same way we go with lies, same way we go with adultery, same way we go with any, just about any sin that you can conceive in your head, if we go to those people and we tell them the error of their ways and they truly repent, which means they do their absolute best not to do that again, we have helped to hide a multitude of sin. A multitude. That wraps up the book of James.